Good morning, church. Morning. Uh, this month is about unity. Uh, today is special. Uh, in order to promote uh, this vision of unity, we are the Cantonese congregation and the English congregation are doing an exchange of prisoner. I'm an exchange of pastor today. <laughs> yeah, Pastor Gilbert preaches in the Cantonese service, and I am here in the English service. So, so it's a wonderful thing. But last month was Chinese New Year, and uh, I, I came across a story behind a common greeting in which I have never known that it exists until last month. So this thing, excuse me for using some Cantonese, I mean Chinese words, this thing, some of you can read, we, we know, but I'll give you some, the, the literal meaning. It means one group, harmony, atmosphere but it can be translated uh, better into harmonious unity. And, and again, forgive me for using Chinese words here. I just think that this story behind this Chinese saying is quite interesting and insightful. And, and for Chinese, or, or in fact, societies that build around families as basic units, harmony is a very desirable state. It's even a virtue or a blessing. Even as Christians, we value harmony highly and see unity as a condition that we must uphold. And that's why we have this vision too. However, not all harmonies or unities are the same. And in the story behind this Chinese saying, the phrase came from, actually this, this Chinese saying came from a painting that the king at that time, it was the Ming Dynasty, about 550 years ago, ordered, the king ordered this painting to be, to be created. The king ordered a prominent painter at that time to create this painting, which looks like this, a chubby guy. So when you think about harmony, you think about chubby. But don't be fooled. This painting here is not one big round guy. There are, in fact, you know how many people in this painting? There are three people in this painting. There is one, this one, on our left. Uh, this is the guy who represents Confucianism. The guy on the right here, it, he was a prominent figure for Taoism. But there's also a guy in the middle with a big belly. This was actually a famous Buddhist monk uh, at that time. So this painting, ordered by the king to, to exist, represented a political propaganda that the Ming Dynasty king attempted to use to achieve political harmony. The agenda promoted by this painting was called unification of free religious, uh, free religions into one, combining free Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism into one. So the story behind our Chinese New Year greeting was about achieving harmony by compromising your belief. Harmony and unity were more important than doctrinal integrity or the truthfulness of one's faith. 
it was okay for Confucianism, for Taoism, or for Buddhism, because none of them is monotheistic, like one God, and none of them base their doctrines on revelation only. So you can always add a God, or you can always change stuff. But this is not the case for Christianity. In Christianity, though we acknowledge that unity is something that we must strive for, it's nevertheless not an absolute virtue. In that unity is neither good nor bad in itself. It can be good, but also it can be bad. The goodness of unity doesn't come from unity itself, but from the basis and the goals of our unity. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the high priests can be very unified, but their goal was to get rid of Jesus. So, even though they had unity, their unity was indeed evil. So, unity in itself is not necessarily good or bad. Sometimes, it's better to have disunity than unity. At least in disunity, we do not need to compromise what is true to us. So in this month, all three congregations of our church would focus on this topic of unity. And this month, the pastoral team hoped that we can learn from the Bible about on what basis are we united on and for what purpose. We need to be united, but not just for the sake of being united. In the New Testament, there are a few very classic passages that reveal God's idea of unity to us. One of those was uh, Ephesians 4, which is our theme passage, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 3. Pastor Gilbert preached already on, on that topic, uh, on that verse, a couple of weeks ago. The other one is John 17, in which the entire chapter forms a prayer of Jesus. And I thank God for this privilege to preach to you for two consecutive weeks on this enormously valuable passage. So now why don't we listen to God's word and see how Jesus prayed for us. John 17 is going to be read by Emily to us. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, it's 26 verses here. We're just going to read the first 19 verses. Okay, Emily? Okay, so John 17 verses 1 to 19. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They, are your, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. Thank you. So after listening to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for having the beloved disciples of Jesus, John, to have recorded for us this precious prayer of Jesus. May you open our hearts as we listen to Jesus pray for us. We will have a good grasp on his desire on what He desires to see in us uh, as we come together as a church and be unified in the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John 17, you have read through this already, so I'm just going to skip through this. Yeah. John 17 is a very unique passage. Even though the overall theme is about unity of church, it's not really an instruction that Jesus was giving to his disciples on how to maintain unity. Rather, it is a prayer that Jesus spoke to God the Father. So in this prayer, the one whom Jesus was asking to do something for the unity of the church was not the disciples, but God the Father. A lot of times we read about Jesus' praise, but not very often are we given the content of his prayer. We are often told that Jesus left the group and, and, and to have a private prayer time, and that's it. No further elaboration. But John 17 is different. It is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the entire Bible. In fact, strictly speaking, this prayer should be known as the Lord's Prayer, because this is really the prayer that Jesus made on a personal level to God the Father. Maybe the more familiar Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 should be called the Disciples' Prayer taught by Jesus. Jesus' prayer in, G- in John 17 allows us to see what really in Jesus' mind and heart right before he was arrested and subsequently crucified. As one's prayer usually would tell the deepest desire of the person, in this farewell prayer, happening in the night right before his death, what was Jesus' deepest desire for the people he loved? What did Jesus want to see in us as his followers? In this 26th verse prayer, Jesus would reveal to us, I mean John would reveal to us, Jesus' deepest desire for his disciples, and it can be summarized in one word, unity. But this is not an unqualified form of unity, but a unity defined and restricted by God's revealed truth. 
Jesus' prayer can be, can be divided quite clearly into three sections in this whole chapter. In the onset, Jesus prayed for himself. Then in the middle, the longest section, Jesus prayed for his immediate disciples at that time. And lastly, the, the final seven verses, uh, Jesus offered prayer for all his future disciples, including all of us here in this generation. And today I'm going to just focus on the second, uh, I mean the, the middle section, but next week I will elaborate more on the final section. But before I go into the middle section today, I want to direct your attention to the group of people that Jesus did not pray for. You see, Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed for his immediate disciples at that time. Finally, he prayed for all future disciples until the day he returns to us in glory. So he, he's prayed for many, many people. But for the entirety of his prayer, Jesus did not pray for the world. Not only that he did not pray for the world, he even made it clear in his prayer that in verse 9, I pray for them, the disciples. He said, but he is not praying for the world. He said, I am not praying for the world. Or we might wonder why. Why Jesus did not pray for the world, for everyone. Jesus, don't you care for the world? Wasn't it true that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? Why Jesus not pray for the world? And not only that, not praying for them is one thing, but saying it out to make a point that you are not praying for them is another thing. It's like in Facebook. It's one thing you don't click the like of your friend's post. It's another thing that you comment on that and you say you don't like his post. Another thing. So why Jesus not pray for the world? Well, Jesus did not pray for the world and even making it clear that he wasn't praying for them was not without reason. But definitely, it's not because Jesus did not care about the world. He came to offer up himself to the world. To understand Jesus' intention, there are two aspects that we need to pay attention on. Well, first, it is because Jesus cares so much of the world that he prayed for his disciples. Jesus prayed specifically for his disciples because he wanted nothing but divine blessing for the world. Jesus wasn't praying for the blessing of his disciples, or for his disciples. He was praying specifically that, that his disciples would be a blessing to the world. This is how Jesus not prayed for the world, but only his disciples. That's what he said. He said, as you send me, Father, you send me into this world, I send them, the disciples, into the world. Verse 15, Jesus said, My prayer is not that you, Father, take them, disciples, out of the world. No, but you protect them while they are in the world from the evil one. Jesus, in his prayer, was saying that he has sent his disciples into the world. He even prayed to the Father not to take them, the disciples, out of the world even if it means that they have to suffer persecution and hardship. And the, the way Jesus prayed for 
was, was for one purpose. Verse 29, 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. This is the ultimate goal. That, he, that Jesus prayed for his disciples. Now we probably get the idea of why Jesus said, I pray for them, I'm not praying for the world. It's certainly not that Jesus did not care about the world. What's true is the opposite. Jesus cares so much about the world so that he prays specifically for his disciples so that they will be the channel of blessings for the world. Well, sometimes the objects of our prayer might not necessarily be the intended beneficiary of our prayer. Now, I like to pray for people like Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump. But my ultimate concern is not their own well-being. I pray for them that they will act for the best interest of the people. So in this farewell prayer, Jesus specifically prayed for his disciples because he is so concerned about the well-being of the world. But there is also a second aspect of why Jesus did not pray for the world in his prayer, or in this specific prayer. The reason is that he cannot. In this very specific prayer, Jesus, in fact, cannot pray for the world. Why? Well, it's because the primary theme of this prayer is about unity. From the unity between Jesus and the Father, to the unity between Jesus and his disciples, to the unity among all disciples. This is the theme of this prayer. In verse 11, Jesus says, Holy Father, protect them, disciples, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they, the disciples, may be one, as we are one. In this prayer of unity, Jesus cannot pray for the world. We need to understand first that the word world in the gospel is never a neutral word. The world from the biblical worldview is evil. John said it loud and clear. In his letter, 1 John chapter 2, John said, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, including the cravings of sinful men, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. This is not Merriam-Webster's definition of the world. This is not Wikipedia's explanation of the world. It is the Bible's view, or God's view, of the world we are living in. It is a system organized itself in opposition to God. It is a group of people who cannot save themselves, but desperately in need of salvation. Therefore, as Jesus prayed about unity, he cannot pray for the world. How can Jesus pray for the unity of the world? For the world to be saved. Their unity in worldly desires and sins must be broken up. There has to be a disunity in the world for any of them to be able to repent and be saved. The world's unity in opposition to God must collapse for the gospel to take effect in their lives. 
So Jesus, in this specific prayer of unity, did not and could not pray for the world. So Jesus prayed for the unity of his disciples. But as we heard Jesus pray, we need to pay attention on what he really meant. When he prayed, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they, the disciples, may be one as we are one. Take note on what Jesus said. The action that Jesus asked of his Father is to protect protect the unity of the disciples. However, the, word, the original word uh, for, the, this, for the word protect is actually closer to the word keep in meaning. Keep. Keep them. Jesus prayed that the Father would keep the disciples' unity. Jesus did not ask the Father to give them unity or to help them achieve unity. The word keep already assumes something in existence. This is very similar to what Paul said in Ephesians, that we must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. To keep. Unity is not something that we are to manufacture. It's not something that we can establish by ourselves. If we are trying to unify on something that we can create, such as our common interests, our common ambitions, then we are looking at the wrong kind of unity. Our unity as disciples of Jesus, first and foremost, is the unity given to us by the Spirit. At the time we acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our unity is built upon our spiritual common ground. That we have the same Lord, the same Spirit, we have the same faith, same baptism, we belong to the same body, we share in the same hope, and we serve the same God. But then as Jesus continued to pray on, he prayed that his disciples may be one as we are one. Huh. Who is this we? Of course, this is Jesus and God the Father. Now, Jesus prayed that our unity will become like the unity between him and the Father? Huh? Is this really a, a reasonable prayer? Was Jesus expecting too much from us that our unity will be like the unity among the Trinity God? You know, we might not pay much attention on Jesus' prayer here. We might even discount the importance of this particular petition here simply because we cannot imagine that the degree of our unity can come even close to the degree of unity between Jesus and the Father. Well, this is true in some sense. Because the degree of our unity will never be able to compare to the degree of unity between Jesus and the Father. The three persons of the Godhead are free in one in actual form. But for us, our in-one can only be in symbolic form, in actuality, you are still you. I am still me. But if we think that Jesus prayed that our degree of unity will be like the degree of the unity between Him and the Father, then that's exactly where we got it wrong. When something is like, you know, or just as something, 
It can be in many different ways. You know, if someone is like me, he could be a Chinese guy, 40-something, who only wears suits on Sunday. But it could also be a white woman who likes to watch Roger Federer playing tennis and who doesn't eat spicy food at all. So when Jesus prayed that the Father would keep the unity of his disciples just as we are one, it did not necessarily mean degree of unity. The way I think that Jesus was praying can be understood in four angles, including not the degree, but the expression of our unity, the purpose of our unity, the foundation of our unity, and the character of our unity. And I'll, I'll do this one by one, but let's, first of all, let's take a look of the expression of our unity. How do we express our unity should mimic the way Jesus expresses the unity between him and the Father? Well, first, we, we would all know that the most basic form of expression of unity is love. As disciples of Jesus, if we are to keep the unity in the Spirit, we must love each other. Also in the Gospel of John, Jesus once said in chapter 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men, the world, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Still, love can be anything if we don't further define it. Love means different things to different people. Some, some, someone might show love by offering gifts. Others might show love by giving compliments. There's a Chinese saying, I love, therefore I beat you up. That's old style parenting, right? I'm not encouraging it, okay? You can't do that in Canada. The Ministry of Children would just take your kid away. So now, Jesus expresses love in his unity with the Father. How does he do that? In the first line of his prayer, chapter 17, verse 1, he had given us some clues. In verse 1 of this chapter, the Bible says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Before Jesus asked the Father for anything in his prayer, he said that the time has come. What time? The time for what? At the beginning of this farewell discourse, in chapter 13, Jesus already said it. He said it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world. The time has come. It is the time for Jesus to be crucified. But this saying assumes a preordained time. Someone set a specific time for Jesus to go on to the cross. And that Jesus now realized that such time has come. Who preordained this time? Of course, this is the Father. And when this time has come, Jesus would submit himself obediently to the Father's will. So the way Jesus expressed love to his Father is by submission. So now for us, to keep our unity, just as the unity between Jesus and the Father, we are to love one another by submitting to one another, sacrificially. 
So, in addition to expression of unity, our purpose for unity must also parallel the purpose of unity between Jesus and his Father. After saying that the time has come, Jesus continued to say in his prayer, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The purpose or the goal of Jesus' unity with the Father is for him to glorify the Father so that the Father will glorify him. It's about glory. Then, the glory here in the unity between Jesus and the Father is a mutual glory. The defining characteristics of this glory is mutuality. In Jesus' prayer, there is never a glory for the Father that would leave Jesus out. Or there is never a glory for Jesus in which the Father is excluded. The glory that the Father wants is a glory shared with Jesus. The glory that Jesus wants is a glory shared with the Father. So for us, Jesus' disciples, we are to be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. So the purpose of our unity is first of all about glory. We are to glorify God the Father in all we do, but particularly in keeping our unity. The word glorify in Bible really means magnify. That's what the word means, glory, magnify. And the word is doxa, doxology, doxa means glory, magnify. When we gather together as a group of Christians, and in the process, if we are magnifying anything else other than God, then it doesn't really matter how unified we are. We are staying unified for the wrong purpose. And for our unity, and in our unity, uh, it's not just about glory, it's about also mutuality. The glory that the Father and the Son seek would never be acquired at the expense of each other. There's no competition in the unity between Jesus and the Father. There's no peer pressure between them. And when, when we are to achieve this unity among all three congregations at VCBC, mutuality is what we, we need to always keep in mind. Now, after 50 years almost, God has led VCBC to be a free congregation church. No one congregation is more important than the other ones. And no one congregation is less important than the other ones. And at times that we face a lack of space, lack of manpower, we tend to turn our focus on our own needs. But if we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, mutual must be practiced at all times. Whether we are lacking or in surplus, that we take care of each other. Even I serve primarily in the Cantonese congregation. You guys and the Mandarin congregation are as important to me as the Cantonese. And I'm sure the other pastor would share the same conviction as I do. So other than expression and purpose, the third point, foundation of our unity was also addressed by Jesus in his prayer. And this foundation is the word of God. In verse 17, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them in truth, or by the truth, your word is truth. Disciples are not to keep the unity for the sake of unity. 
sometimes disunity can be a more appropriate situation than unity. It's because as disciples, we must never keep our unity as at the expense of the truth revealed in the Bible. Jesus prayed that we will never compromise the biblical truth in order to achieve unity. If it is not a unity in truth, then Jesus would rather us to not have unity. There are many doctrinal issues over church 2,000 years history that have caused disunity. Some of them were rather trivial matters, but others were very fundamentally defining issues. Nowadays, the most significant issues impacting church unity can range from styles of worship, to same-sex marriage, to the use of certain drugs or marijuana, or to which party you vote for. But at the end of the day, it is how well we understand how the Bible addresses each issue that matters. If we don't study the Bible well, if we have no system in learning what God has revealed to us, how are we going to be in unity in truth? So go to the Sunday school, Bible study class, read the Bible every day. God's Word has laid out a framework showing us in what area we must strive for unity, but in what area we are to separate ourselves. Which brings us to my last point here in today's message. The character of our unity. The character of our unity is described as sanctification in Jesus' prayer. In verse 17 and 19, he prays, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctification, which refers to the process in achieving holiness, characterizes our unity. When we talk about character, we talk about what makes us stand. When people interact with us, what kind of person would they see that we are? Our character makes us different. And being different is what sanctification or holiness is about. Holiness essentially means being set apart from the world to God. We are to be like God, and we are to be unlike the world. So if we are to keep the unity in spirit, do we relate to each other just as any organization in the world? How are our small groups or fellowships different from other interest groups in the world? Our unity characterized by holiness is like our jersey. Sports team, whether soccer, hockey, basketball, volleyball, have their own jerseys. Jersey is a way to be and to stay different from others. It makes them recognizable by anyone who watches them. Our unity functions more or less the same way, which is to make us recognizable or distinguishable by anyone who watches us. When they look at us, they can tell the difference. Jesus emphasizes in his prayer that the best way the outside world can recognize that we are different is not by 
what we say to them is not by how we behave as individuals, but by how we relate to each other in this community, in unity that is built upon God's truth and for God's glory. If the character of our unity is the same as those in the world, then what's the point for us to be in unity? In the Bible, there's one prominent figure that represents sanctification. And this group of, group of people is the priest. And in Baptist church like ours, we regard the notion of priesthood of all believers very highly. However, I, I think a lot of times, we have a skewed understanding of how priesthood of all believers applies in our church life. Many times I heard among us, applying priesthood of all believers, we're all priests. It is about everyone should have a say. Everyone has the same right in our decision-making process. However, though I don't disagree with such application, the emphasis of priesthood of all believers was never primarily about our right. It is about our responsibility to set ourselves apart to show the world how good our God is. Priesthood of all believers means that it is not just up to the pastors or church leaders to keep the unity among ourselves and different congregations. It is up to all of us to keep this unity. It is everybody's business. So, brothers and sisters, I'm not finished with this farewell prayer of Jesus yet. There's just so much treasure in it. So I'll come back next week for the second part. Our third vision, unity of all three congregations, remember, must be expressed in the form of submission, mutual submission. Must aim to magnify God and also aim mutually being careful. Must be built upon God's truth and must be recognizable by the world that we are set apart for God. This is how Jesus prayed for us. And now let us respond to Jesus' prayer with our own prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have, we have listened to how Jesus prayed for us. We have been revealed by your word of the deepest desire of our Lord Jesus, which is for all of us to be one, just as you and the Father and, and Jesus are one. Father, this unity is not easy. It's no easy feat for us. But it is not, and it is not even possible to achieve by our own efforts. That's why we pray to you. We join Jesus in prayer and ask that you help keep our unity. Humble our hearts so that we are willing to submit ourselves and focus on glorifying you only. Brighten our hearts so that we will desire your word and strengthen our hearts so that we will be bold enough to set ourselves apart from the world for you. Have mercy on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.